Good morning. It's great to see everybody. Even though it's hot, it's so great to see your faces, and I look forward to fellowship with you after the service. You know, I'm not good with heat. I grew up in upstate New York. It's very cold. It snows there. But I'm so amazed by Indonesians who have a high tolerance for heat. I mean, I just look at Joseph here. He has sweatshirt, jeans, hat. I'm just like, how do you do that? That would put me in a hospital. I would dehydrate, be dehydrated and collapse. So I wish I can do that. It's amazing. Uh, it's good, good to see you guys here, even though it's hot. Thank you for coming. Um, please turn your Bible to Matthew 20, verse 17 to 28. Now, have you ever aspired to be great or to be a leader? Have you ever wanted to be a leader in your school, in your company, in your community, or in your church, or even an influencer on YouTube? If you have, have you ever thought about the motivation behind your aspirations? Is it for significance, prestige, power, or money? Have you ever thought what makes a leader great? Well, today's passage will answer all these questions. And if you're not a leader, or anyone, you don't have a, posi a position of leadership in the church or organization, please don't tune out because it still applies to you. If you have any influence, authority over somebody, this message applies to you. If you're a parent and you have children, you have authority and influence over them. So this applies to you. And even if you don't have any position of leadership, this still applies to you. Because sacrificial service applies to everybody, not just for leaders, but especially for leaders. So this applies to you. And I hope that by the end of this sermon, you will know what to look for in a spiritual leader. I have met many Christians who suffer spiritually because they follow the wrong type of leaders and they suffer. And sometimes they blame God when in reality they shouldn't blame God. They should blame themselves because they did not follow what God says in the Bible. So I want you to know how to find the right spiritual leader. Now before we look into our passage, let's understand the context of this passage. At this moment of the narrative, Jesus and his 12 disciples were just days away from entering Jerusalem in chapter 21. And it was clear that his purpose to enter Jerusalem was to die and raise on the third day to pay for the, sin of, pay for the uh, penalty of our sins. And in order for people to understand and appreciate the cross, people must understand and have humility. So Jesus started from Matthew 18, I'm sorry, Matthew 19. He gave a series of lessons on humility before he entered Jerusalem in chapter 21. And our passage belongs in this series of lessons on humility. In this passage, Jesus was correcting the disciples' worldly sense of greatness in a leader. See, if their sense of greatness in a leader is corrupted, then the cross will be completely puzzled to them. It will be even embarrassing for them if they don't have the 
right sense of greatness in a leader. You see, people do not reject the cross because there is a brain problem. It's ultimately not an intellectual problem. It's ultimately a heart problem. We have a defective sense of greatness from birth. We think that greatness in a leader is having authority, forcing your will upon people, telling them what to do. That is not greatness in a leader. Greatness in a leader is about sacrificial service. It's about love. And this is the purpose of the passage. The passage teaches us that true greatness of a leader is in sacrificial service to others so that others may know God's love, experience, and imitate his love. Let's read this passage, Matthew 20, verse 17 to 28. It says, And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flocked and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the son of Zebedee came up to him with, his, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at the right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. They said, he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and those and these and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom many. Now here in this passage, Jesus teaches about the greatness of a leader by first giving himself as the ultimate example of greatness. He prophesies about his imminent death and resurrection. Even before his crucifixion happened, he foretold about it because he is God. It is a demonstration that he is divine, he is in total control, is not out of his control. He is, making, he is able to make things happen in the world. Jesus would die because, not because he's a helpless victim, but because he was a determined leader who loved to rescue and help people who are in misery, to rescue people from their sins and eternal suffering. And this deliverance was very costly for Jesus. 
Salvation is free for us, but it's not free for Jesus. It costs him tremendously. It is the greatest sacrifice in the world. He had to endure the greatest torture and humiliation that mankind has ever created at that time. It was not small sacrifice. It is the greatest sacrifice in the world. Before he was crucified, he was whipped 39 times. And the whip that was used to flock him had sharp metals and bones at the tip. And these metals and bones can rip large pieces of his flesh off and even torn his internal organs. Many people have died just from the flocking, even before they were crucified. And after they flock him, they humiliate him, ridicule him. They put a crown or thorn on him and spit on him. I don't know about you, but I was spit at, one time I was spit at, it was humiliating. I was so angry that I want to punch the guy. But I didn't do it because he was bigger than me. Uh, it's just humiliating. What Jesus suffered is 10,000 times worse than my worst humiliation. And then finally, his hands were pierced with nails to the cross. And he hung there for six hours before he died. It's excruciating pain. It's not just the physical pain, the suffering that he felt, but also the emotional, relational pain that he felt. On the cross, he took on the sin of the whole world, and he was forsaken and punished by God the Father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went through pain, suffering that we cannot imagine. I have never felt any physical pain anywhere close to what Jesus felt. You know, the greatest pain I probably felt was when I get hit in my head and scream for a few minutes. But there's nothing compared to what Jesus did. I cannot imagine going through the kind of pain that Jesus suffered. And he did this all voluntarily for you and for me. This is the greatest demonstration of sacrificial leadership. His love was stronger than the worst pain in the world, and he was able to endure it. His love caused him to endure that tremendous pain. Jesus humbly loved us by lowering himself and using his divine authority position to die for our sins, to pay for the penalty of our sins. This is the most beautiful love in the universe and is the greatest demonstration of true greatness in a leader. Greatness in a leader is not about forcing your authority on people. It's not about telling people what to do, but it's sacrificially and humbly loving others so that they may benefit spiritually and physically. When I look at the cross, I feel so unworthy of his sacrificial love for me. I'm humble by his love. That is our reaction. That should be our reaction. And it should cause us to love him, worship him, and imitate his love. Because it's this love that saves us from hell. This is the greatest thing in a leader you could ever see. 
Now, after Jesus gave himself as the ultimate example of greatness in a leader, did the disciples immediately learn from Jesus and obey? No. They immediately disobey him. They immediately start to follow, continue to strive after the worldly sense of greatness in a leader. In this passage, in verses 20 to 25, we see four models of the opposite of greatness in a leader. The disciples, instead of being humbled by Jesus' love and imitating his servant leadership, they continue to strive after worldly greatness. And the first model can be called political power play in verse 20 to 23. Here the mother of James and John asked Jesus to make her son to be the right-hand man and the left-hand man in Jesus' kingdom. Right hand is the second highest position in the kingdom and left is the third highest. She had this selfish ambition for power. She was trying to live vicariously through her two sons. I know this is a very common temptation for parents, especially tiger moms. They want the kids to obtain power and fame so that they can have a sense of power and fame. And even though the mother of James and John showed great humility by kneeling down before Jesus, but her request was selfish and prideful. So we can actually look outwardly humble, but inwardly we could still be very prideful. And the parallel passage in Mark 10 does not even mention the mother. It just mentions James and John. And the reason it does that is to show us that it was James and John who first instigated this whole plan. They were just, in, just using the mother as a tool to gain power to achieve the plan. And why did they do that? The most likely reason is because the mother, whose name is Salome, was the sister of Jesus' mother. So that made her to be Jesus' aunt. James and John were cousins of Jesus. We know this by comparing Matthew 27, 27, 56, Mark 10, 40, and John 19, 25. So they were trying to use their family position, their mom's position as the end of Jesus to gain power. Jesus, uh, James and John still did not understand Jesus' prophecy about his suffering and crucifixion. They still did not understand Jesus' teaching about true greatness in a leader. It's about humble service, not seeking after selfish ambitions. This is why Jesus told them, you don't know what you're asking. You do not know what you're asking for. So Jesus asked them whether they were able to drink the cup that he was about to drink. And cup just means the cup of suffering and death. Drinking it is to experience suffering and death because to follow Jesus It's not about power, but about suffering, because he was about to suffer. Now, either John or James 
misunderstood what Jesus said, or they were overly confident about the powers. So they said, yes, we're able to suffer. So Jesus finally ensured them, yes, they will suffer, experience suffering with them, and this will come true. Later in Acts 12, James will be the first one to be martyred. And then John will be exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now even though James and John was willing to suffer with Jesus, do you think that it made them great as leaders? Is it great just to be able to endure suffering? No. Because the motive to suffer is so that they can gain more power. Their motive was not to humbly serve others out of love, but to gain more power. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3 says that, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver, deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. James and John gained nothing. They were not great, even though they were willing to suffer with Jesus because the motivation was wrong. It's not just about how much you are willing to sacrifice, but it's about your motivation behind your sacrifice. If your motivation is wrong, you are nothing. You gain nothing. The two disciples asked this selfish request because their sense of greatness had been corrupted at birth. All of us are born with a defective sense of greatness. We think that greatness is about power, prestige. It's about exalting ourselves over other people, having power, control over people, and having others serve us. All of us are born with this defective sense of greatness. And some people love this idol so much that they are willing to suffer and die for it, just like James and John. Now, even though James and John had sinful ambitions now, but later on, they will learn to suffer for the right reason. We know this because when we read the first epistle of John, we see that the apostle John talks a lot about love. In fact, he talks so much about love that theologians call him the apostle of love. They will later be motivated by the right thing, by love. What a great transformation. There's hope for all of us. Now, the second model of the opposite of true greatness was demonstrated by the rest of the ten disciples in verse 24. And we could call this model envious resentment. When they, heard Jesus, uh, when they heard James and John tried to outmaneuver them to gain power, they were mad. And the reason they were mad is because they wanted the power too. They were mad that these two outmaneuvered them. If they had the right motive, what do you think the reaction would be? If they had the right motive, the reaction would be disappointment, not resentment, they will be disappointed by their sins and gently correct them just like Jesus does here. 
they were mad not because of righteous reasons, but because of unrighteous reasons. And we know this for sure because Jesus corrected all of them, not just the two, but all of them. All of them were guilty of selfish ambition. They did not exhibit serving leadership like Jesus. So Jesus had to correct them by giving two common models of the opposite of greatness, the antithesis of the greatness in the secular world. The first model can be called dominant leadership. This is in verse 25a. Jesus says, The rulers of the Gentiles lord over them. Lord over them means to exercise authority, to use your authority, share power, to force your will on people, and to do what you want to do, even to do your selfish desires. And people do not obey, they kill their people. These rulers kill their people. And they will obtain and hold the political power by any means. They will even kill and hurt other people. Even brothers would fight to the death to gain the father's throne. This is common in the history of the world, in the history of mankind. This is how non-believers function, think, and work. The power, the power was their idol, and they would do anything to get it. This is the world's sense of greatness, but it is not great in God's eyes. And the second example of the antithesis of greatness in a leader from the secular world can be called manipulative control. This is in verse 25b. It says, the great ones exercise authority over them. The great ones here means distinguished or illustrious leaders. Whereas the dominant dictators force people to do what they want out of sheer power, these, these great ones, they use manipulation, charm to control people. They use popularity. By flattery, charm, and attractiveness, they manipulate others to control them and to do what they want to do. Uh, all cult leaders... Prosperity gospel preachers are all charismatic leaders who gain a following by their manipulation, charm, flattery, and attractiveness. The motive is not to serve people, but to use people for their selfish gains. This is greatness to the world. But Jesus said to his disciples, It shall not be so among you. They are not to be like the world. But sadly, at that moment, they were like the world. They were just like the world. Their selfish ambition for power is the same as the world. Even though their sin was child's play compared to the world, you know, their sin is not going to turn into murder or physical violence like the world. But it has the same seed. And that seed can grow into violence, can grow into more serious stuff like the world. They were just like the world. But Jesus told them, you are not to be like the world. So in order to crack their defective sense of greatness, Jesus taught them what is true greatness. He gave them the principle of true greatness in verses 26 to 28. And the principle is this. It's very simple. 
True greatness in a leader is not forcing your authority on others and make them do what you want them to do. True greatness is about sacrificially serving others for their spiritual and physical good. That is what Jesus did on the cross for us. And Jesus says that whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Servants were lowly people. They served like cleaning tables. But slaves were owned by the masters. They were even lower than servants. They had to even serve more than the servants. So what Jesus is saying, the more you serve, the greater you are in his kingdom. This is so because he is the standard of greatness. God is the standard of greatness. Jesus says in verse 25, uh, 28, that he has come to serve others and not to be served by others by giving his life as a ransom for many. A sacrificial service shows God's great character of love. And God's greatest glory is his character. This is why sacrificial service is true greatness in a leader. And the second reason why serving leadership is great is because it fosters and maintains a utopia, a perfect kingdom. Only this kind of attitude promotes perfect peace, love, unity, harmony, and joy in society. A defective sense of greatness produces Jealousy, hatred, anger, and fighting. We saw this in the disciples. They were fighting because they had a defective sense of greatness. And we even see this in our own world right now, everywhere, in our companies, in our school, and even among nations. There are many nations who want to be great again, and they will use violence to achieve that greatness if they can. This is why servant leadership is great. It creates a utopia. And I remember when I was in secular business school, I was surprised to learn that even the concept of servant leadership was taught by some people because it was introduced by Christians. This concept originated from Jesus, not from the secular world. It was introduced by some Christians, and even some non-Christians picked it up because they see the benefits of it. It makes absolutely good sense. If everybody, especially the leaders, humbly and lovely, lovingly serve others, no corruption, of course the company is going to be better. Right? It makes very, very good sense. This is blessing from following God's rules, following his blessing. Servant leadership is great. It promotes utopia. Now, Jesus <clears throat> came to serve us by dying on the cross for us. That does, mean, that does not mean that he gave up his authority. I once heard a person who claimed to be a Christian say that, Oh, see, Jesus came to serve us, so we don't have to obey him. You know, I hear a lot of crazy stuff from people who claim to be Christians. This is why you need to know your Bible. This is absolutely not true. He came to sacrificially serve us, not by giving away his authority, but by using his authority for our good. 
You know, as parents, when I sacrificially serve my children, I don't give up my authority. I use my authority to benefit them. To give up my authority is crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. So he's not giving up his authority. He's using his authority for our benefit. Sacrificial serving others, sacrificially serving others does not mean you give up your authority. Greatness of a leader is not about using authority to boss people around, even though God is the creator and the ruler of the universe. Even he does not force people to worship him if they don't want to. Right? Yes, God judges people for their sins. He repays people for their crimes. But he does not put a gun at a person's head and force a person to worship him or die. He doesn't do that. If someone does not want to worship God, he lets a person live according to his, own, his, his or her own desires and suffer the consequences of their foolishness. He doesn't force them. He doesn't use authority on people and force them to submit. Uh, we see this in ourselves. Right? We come to church not because God has a gun on our head, but because we are captivated by his love and his righteousness. We come because we want to worship him. We love him. It is a privilege to worship him. He doesn't force his authority on us. We lovingly submit to his loving authority. We must understand the right concept, the right sense of greatness. If a person does not have the right sense of greatness in a leader, then the cross of Jesus makes absolutely no sense to them. It's foolishness to them. This is why the world mock the cross. It's foolish to them. If a person's definition of greatness in a leader is about having power and prestige and forcing your will on people, then the cross is absolutely foolishness. But to the one who has the right sense of greatness, then the cross is the ultimate display of beauty, majesty, and greatness. It is beautiful. And notice that Jesus does not teach us to, for, he doesn't forbid us to seek greatness. There's nothing wrong with our desire to seek great things. We are made to desire to worship greatness. It's part of being a human. We cannot get rid of this sense of desire for great things. Don't buy into the Buddhist idea that the highest goal in life is to have no desire at all. To have nirvana, no desire at all. That is a contradiction in itself. How can you have how can you desire to have no desire? That is impossible. We are made to desire great things. There's nothing wrong with our desire for greatness. The problem is our sense of greatness. We, have, we are born with a defective sense of greatness. That's the problem. We seek after idols instead of God. God is the greatest being in the universe. We are to worship desire and seek him not ourselves we are not great 
not other idols. That's the problem. He is, God is supposed to be the ultimate object of our worship. Now, brothers and sisters, it's good to see greatness, to seek to influence people for Christ, for the spiritual good. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, it's good to seek leadership positions and influence for the right reasons. But be very careful because pride is very deceptive and subtle. It can easily sneer us if we are not careful. So I want to give three ways that you can do to protect yourself from the sneer of pride. Number one, put your ultimate joy and identity in your relationship with Jesus, not in your accomplishments. Jesus says in Luke 10, 20, he says this to his disciples, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the context here, Jesus gave the disciples many gifts, and they were able to accomplish many things, like controlling, subjecting, and casting out demons. But he says, don't pour your highest joy in your accomplishment, but rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your relationship with Christ. That is how we protect ourselves from the snare of pride. I've heard many, many church leaders who started ministry well. They have good intention, good motivations. But once their ministry grew bigger and bigger, they became prideful. They became, they, they became, <clears throat> they started to put their highest joy and identity in their accomplishments instead of in Jesus. And the result is that there's conflicts in the church, and oftentimes these gifted leaders are disqualified from ministry because of moral failures. It's very, very deceptive pride. Sometimes we think we are building God's kingdom, but in reality, we are building our own kingdom. It's very, very deceptive. <clears throat> Some people even demand that the followers have more loyalty to themselves instead of Jesus. Don't follow that kind of leader, or else you will suffer. And the second way to protect ourselves from pride is to watch ourselves regularly. <clears throat> First Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Uh, be very careful. <clears throat> the sin of pride can be very deceiving and subtle. We need to watch ourselves all times. And the more prominent your position is, the more temptation there is. And one of the keys to watch yourself is by being in a gospel community, by being in a community group where people know you, they love you, and when you are out of line, they can lovingly come and point that out to you. There's protection in gospel community. It's one of the God's grace given to us. Community is a grace to us. If you don't take that, you are forsaking God's grace. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. 
he breaks out against all sound judgment. If you isolate yourself, you will suffer eventually. You will suffer spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and even physically. So be in community. Watch yourself. I highly recommend reading Paul Church's book called Lead. It's a really helpful book for any leader or anyone who aspires to be a leader because he helps you to apply the gospel in your leadership position. And finally, third, their way to protect yourself is to follow leaders who sacrificially serve others for Jesus. If you want to protect yourself, look for churches that preach and obey the gospel and the Bible. Look for leaders who strive to be great by sacrificially serving others for Jesus. Don't look for leaders who look cool, who have the latest fashion. That's not a criteria in the Bible. Man looks outside, but God looks inside. Don't look for leaders who have selfish ambition. Avoid them. I have met many Christians who have suffered spiritually because they follow church leaders who are worldly, who were domineering. They did not use God's criteria to find leaders, so they suffer. You know, one of the great things about persecution is that it purifies the church. In the early first century church, it was not cool to be a Christian. To be a leader meant that you were ready to give your life for the faith, for the church. There were no celebrity pastors back then. Persecution prevents many people from becoming leaders for the wrong reasons. And that's why it's good for the church at times. And I'm thankful that JICF have, has elders who exhibit Christ-like sacrificial love. And I pray that God will continue to bless and protect this church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you. Thank you for your great demonstration of greatness in a leader through Jesus. May we see that beauty, that greatness, and strive toward that. May you change our defective sense of greatness. May we chase after true joy, unity, love, not after self, selfish ambitions. May you continue to protect this church. May you bless the church. May you protect the leaders here. Pray this in Jesus' name.